0: If you're worried about environmental justice or social justice issues, if you're worried about where your taxpayer money is going, if you're worried about national security and food security, if you're worried about America being great for your family or your grandchildren, if you're worried about feeding your children well, if we're worried about any one of those things, this big meat, consolidated corporate system of industrial agriculture, this is our issue, and we should be caring about it.
1: I think a lot of people listening today and general public uh, grasp big pharma uh they grasp big banks but this is really a story untold and and that is the political power and the influence that big meat has uh in our capitals
2: they have enormous political power i mean along with the economic power that they have they have enormous uh political power it's just a total kind of a revolving door scene where The political interests are one and the same, and that's why it's so difficult to regulate
3: them. Enormous political power. Revolving door scene. Those are my favorites. Don't get me wrong. I love meat, and I'm not going to try to convince you on this episode that you need to give up eating meat. What I am going to do is introduce you to the fucked up corporate system that gets the meat you love to your dinner plate. Talk about how that came about and let you know what you can do about it. This is about the power that a handful of highly consolidated meatpacking companies wield over our food system, our government, and even our diets, and the immense profit they make to the detriment of our health, the health of rural communities, and the planet itself. So, who is Big Meat? I want to start by answering that question very literally. Where does our meat come from? This is Leah Douglas. She's a reporter at the nonprofit Food and Environment Reporting Network.
4: There's just a few companies that really control uh, most of the meat that you would buy in a supermarket. And there's three or four main meat sectors. There's pork, beef, chicken, and other poultries. And in the beef sector, you know, we'll see that, for instance, four companies control 80% of the market, and poultry four companies control something like 65 or 70% of the market. So that's way disproportional to, there's many more companies than that in the US, but those companies have amassed a lot of power. And actually, some of the same companies are really dominant in chicken, they're also really dominant in pork, or they're also really dominant in beef. So it's not even four different companies for each sector. Uh, There's a lot of overlap there. So one of the um, outcomes of that has been, you know, when you go to the grocery store, There's way more than four products. You're at the beef counter, you know, at the meat counter, the butcher counter, or you're shopping for poultry, for chicken, and there's dozens of options. But in reality, many of those brands all sort of link back to the same parent company that is extremely dominant.
3: The key companies we'll be talking about in this episode are JBS, the largest meat processing company in the world, headquartered in Brazil. Smithfield, which does pork. They were acquired by a Chinese holding company in 2013. Cargill, which dabbles in everything and are controlled almost entirely by one family. Tyson Foods, a giant conglomerate built out of a one-truck business during the Great Depression. And National Beef, majority owned by Marfrig, another Brazilian company. So that's JBS, Smithfield, Cargill, Tyson, and National Beef, big meat. But you don't like go to the store and pick up a big sack of JBS meat. You never really see these names. This is Shafali Sharma, the director of the European Office of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy.
2: You don't see their names in big letters on meat packaging in the store, but you, see, you may see brands like Aspen Ridge or Cedar River Farms or Blue Ribbon. That's JBS selling its beef. Tyson is Jimmy Dean or Hillshire Farms. Smithfield is Nathan's Hot Dogs or Farmer John or Farmland. So they have these real rustic, rural, like earthy names, but these are big conglomerates processing a lot of meat.
3: Big meat relies heavily on this image, this rustic American family farm in both marketing and political messaging. But the industrial conglomerates couldn't be more different. Uh, so uh,
1: the family farm I grew up on, just to give you an example, my granddad uh, He would say, boys, we're, 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 I have a twin brother. So that's the boys, uh, boys are you know, we're going to leave that space on that field because, uh, and, and his words were, you know, he said, God's creatures need a little space too. And it's the concept that you're a steward that you, a deed may say that land legally is yours, but it's the, it's the concept that it's, you're just the caretaker for a period of time.
3: Joe Maxwell, who grew up on a family farm and is a family farmer to this day, was lieutenant governor of Missouri before he co-founded the Family Farm Action Alliance. Family
1: farm agriculture uh, to us is more than just the uh, production. It's more than making widgets. Widgets, in this case, would be corn, soybeans, animals. It's a value that's different than industrial agriculture.
3: The family farms that you might think of are the complete opposite of big meat.
2: I look at big meat, these companies, as really like mining companies. They mine good water. They mine land. They mine, you know, human rights, um, natural resources. Uh, Yeah, I, I really see them as an extractive industry.
3: And yeah, we're not just talking about extracting riches from the land but extracting profit from the very life force of rural America.
1: Over the last 30 30 to 40 years, because of this extractive business model, the wealth has been drained from rural America. Rural America is boarded up. Uh, Rural America has depopulated. Not only the family farmer, but also our communities have lost their population. It hasn't always been this
3: way. Here's Leah Douglas.
4: The farming industry used to be very competitive, uh, very open market. When I say used to be, uh, maybe thinking about the early 20th century uh, up until maybe World War II, where it was just sort of a typical, farmers would prepare their goods and sell them to the best buyer. Uh, So in this previous iteration of the market, farmers were often in the position of being price makers. They They could set the price for their goods. And in the wake of World War II, we saw some of the industry starting, especially in the meat sector, starting to move towards this contract model that, again, first first initiated in the chicken industry and actually was brought about by chicken farmers themselves who wanted some security in a volatile market. They essentially wanted a guarantee that their products would be sold. Over time, companies like Tyson Foods have taken that contract model and turned it into something that works favorably for them. So today we see that, and this has been, you know, this didn't all happen overnight. This has been a trend over decades. The result of which is today an extremely entrenched, extremely consolidated sector where a lot of the profit is pooling in the part of the supply chain that is, is controlled by the biggest meat companies um, that we've discussed.
3: Douglas is alluding to something called vertical integration, which is basically when a company owns or controls every step of the supply chain.
4: The processing plants themselves are owned by the big meat companies that we've been referring to. So Tyson Foods, JBS, Smithfield, etc. They will run those processing facilities. Um, And in in the chicken industry in particular, they also own the animals that farmers are raising. So this is one feature of the contract farming system where the the farmer owns the land that the farm is on and the buildings um, that the chickens are raised in, but everything else, the feed, the veterinary supplies and the animals, those are owned by the company. So that's what's called vertically integrated where A company like Tyson Foods, for instance, owns the product that's going through its processing facility, so the chickens, and it also owns the processing and it owns the distribution that gets the product to the retail marketplace, the grocery store.
3: Chicken, from egg to leg, is entirely controlled by big meat. How it got that way is complicated. The industrialization of the meat industry and its effects on workers were widely criticized in the 1900s, the early 1900s, when Upton Sinclair's The Jungle was released. The Jungle was a work of fiction that revealed the very true horrors of working in a meatpacking plant and woke people up to the human cost of their meat consumption. A letter to the editor in the New York Times in 1914 read that Big Meat, quote, Had so combined its forces of extortion that no matter to what point or market a rancher or farmer sent his stock for sale, he was offered one fixed price for them. There was but one buyer, the Beef Trust. End quote. In 2020, same shit, different century. This
2: is a big problem in the US, right? The way that we look at competition in the US is totally skewed against small producers. So it's all about how cheap can consumers get the end product. So as long as consumers are getting cheap meat, uh, companies are allowed to consolidate. And that's a really flawed way of looking at competition, right? The whole point of competition should be that farmers have more than one or two or three buyers to go to so that they can actually sell their product at the cost of production plus make a reasonable profit.
3: But they don't. And throughout the 20th century, the meat industry only got more consolidated. In the 1970s, farmers were explicitly told by the Department of Agriculture, go big or go home. Sherry Duggar, the executive director of the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, told me more.
0: So there was this guy who actually also came from Indiana. I'm not really proud to claim him, but his name was Earl Butts. And he was the secretary of agriculture back in the 70s under Nixon and Ford, both both presidents. He really... Pushed for corporate agriculture. That was his thing. So he started uh, early on in his career as a Secretary of Agriculture. He was encouraging overproduction. Essentially, he he got you know rid of policies that managed production. His mantra was get big or get at, get out to the farmers you know across the nation. During that time, he encouraged them to plant fence row to fence row, and he helped to put new policies into place that incentivizes only the biggest commodity producers. To put it in terms for most folks to understand, in the 1970s there were these price floors and those meant that corporations, you know, they couldn't pay below a set limit for products from farmers. These price floors were taken away in the 1970s. So what that meant for corporate buyers was that they didn't have to worry about how low they were paying farmers for their products because policies were put into place, essentially subsidies that were, that were taxpayer funded, were put into place to help farmers to, to offset those low prices they were getting from corporations.
3: Okay, so major corporations being favored over small businesses, farmers, and consumers. But how did we end up with just four or five major meat packers? Well, meat companies just kept buying each other.
2: So real, like a small fish being eaten by big fish, there's uh, lots of mergers and acquisitions in this industry. It's constantly consolidating and... Smaller um, companies are constantly being um, swallowed up
3: by these companies. We might end up with just one company that controls all of the meat.
2: These mergers will continue. They will continue to consolidate. As long as governments do nothing to actually uh, stop these these mergers and acquisitions, this is going to continue to happen.
3: And of course, that's bad for those small family farmers.
2: In terms of the decline, so there's farmers
0: make up only about 1% of our population in the US. The majority of those are small farms, but the the fact is is that the majority of those um, are not able to compete. They're not offered a fair market, they're not offered fair prices, they're not offered the same subsidies that these big commodity farms and corporate farms are able to uh, enjoy. So it's a real struggle for family farmers to, you know, to survive and to operate in the, in the system that we have today.
3: According to Time magazine, the United States lost more than 100,000 farms between 2011 and 2018. 12,000 of those were between 2017 and 2018 alone. What's replacing them? CAFOs, factory farms, industrial operations, big meat. More after this. I want to take this back to you going to the grocery store. You see a few different kinds of ground beef. Some says grass-fed, some says organic. But one is $2.99 a pound.
0: People like things cheap. We like things to be cheap in our society today. We like to get, you know, a big bang for our buck. I mean, there's so many problems here with this system, but essentially we've been duped and we've been willing to be duped because it's
3: cheap. I too love cheap things and I'm constantly duped. But how do we keep meat so cheap? When I as a consumer go to the grocery store and you know, I live in Brooklyn, I'm going to a grocery store in Bushwick. Like, what are the chances that I'm actually getting something that was farmed in the United States or was farmed by, at, a, at a smaller farm? Am I definitely buying factory farm meat?
4: You know, the average person shopping at the average grocery store for meat is, is most likely to encounter what you described as factory farm meat—the meat that's being sold in the grocery store, unless it's specially labeled—and um, you know, significantly more expensive—is not going to be from a in-state, you know, what we would consider like a local farm. But the for the rest of it, the bulk of it, it's it's very difficult to know as a consumer where that meat is actually um, where it actually originated. But it is very likely to come from a large-scale industrial facility.
3: We're not going to play you any slaughterhouse audio in this episode. There are a lot more problems with CAFOs, or concentrated animal feeding operations, than how the animals who are processed in them are treated. What is a CAFO? A CAFO, is that what people picture when they think of a factory farm?
4: Yes, exactly. So CAFO stands for Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation, and that's sort of the industry jargon for, uh, there's there's a definition for what it means, but essentially it describes a farm that houses thousands of animals at once.
3: Joe Maxwell gave me a slightly more graphic description. CAFO is this confined animal feeding operation.
1: It's these huge buildings that hold five, 10,000 animals in one building standing over these slatted floors uh, so that the manure and urine go down into this pit and then they have to breathe that. So first,
3: understand the stench that goes on in that area. And more and more CAFOs are popping up across America.
4: We've seen really a dramatic rise in the number of KFOs across the country and specifically certain regions, certain states are seeing big spikes in the number of KFOs that are being developed.
0: They're all over the country, honestly. They're everywhere. Iowa has a ton of them. Um, I think in terms of pigs, I forget what the actual numbers are, but I think in Iowa there's like seven pigs to every one person in that state. North Carolina is filled with lots of hogs as well. Um, but the fact is, is these operations also are often placed right next to, you know, dis- uh, communities of color, communities that don't have a lot of power. They're usually marginalized. They're, they usually uh, don't have a lot of funding to be able to, to fight back against these operations coming in. So there's an environmental justice issue here as well in terms of where they're placing these operations next to communities that they know can't fight back.
3: The environmental impact of CAFOs goes beyond just the surrounding area.
4: Unfortunately, there is not very much oversight of the pollution that the meat industry creates. There are many water-related laws and policies that oversee, for instance, the treatment and disposal of waste from major farms and how that's affecting the local groundwater or a local river and stream systems. Um, But even there, there's been deregulation and rollback in the Trump administration to reduce the amount of of oversight for uh, major farms. And there's also, in terms of air pollution that comes out of these facilities, there is essentially almost no oversight or regulation of what chemicals and materials are being pumped into the air and, and breathed in by people who live near these farms. Over the course of the last decade or so, the meat industry and the farm industry has worked to unwind some more stringent regulations that would provide more information, at least, about what meat companies are, are polluting into the air. And today, we don't have very much information or oversight of that. So we do know that there's a huge climate impact for these industries, but unfortunately, the regulatory and enforcement arm is not particularly strong.
3: Yeah, right, shouldn't somebody be stepping in and being like, yo, don't do this, it's ruining everything? Oh, never mind. I just remembered how the government works. Anyway.
4: The current system is incredibly powerful. And as we talked about at the very beginning, the companies that control the meat sector in particular, they have a really a lock, a hold on regulators, on policymakers. And a lot of policymakers that focus on agriculture, whether in Congress who's sitting on the agriculture committees and so on, those tend to be legislators from farm states who are friendly to the biggest meat companies. They might receive donations from those companies. They might know people who work there personally, etc. So that's one of the reasons why we see so much policy that reflects the desires and interests of the meat industry. So that's really the big obstacle in reforming the meat industry is trying to detangle some of that influence.
3: And this isn't just a conspiratorial theory about the power of big meat. Sherry Duggar saw this stuff firsthand, and Joe Maxwell worked in the Missouri government.
0: Prior to this position, I was executive director for Indiana Farmers Union, and I also did a lot of work uh, directly with National Farmers Union, and I've been on Capitol Hill lots and lots of times and spoken to, you know, legislators lots of times, and oftentimes across the table voting, you know, against the things we were lobbying for with Farm Bureau because they were very corporate-minded and and they are working in cahoots with the corporations and making sure that they're supporting agribusiness and legislation. They also had, you know... Five times as many people there supporting their causes. They had—they have millions and millions of dollars from their insurance businesses. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association, all of these organizations are just raking in money and, and taking it into Capitol Hill, unfortunately. And, and supporting these legislators who support them through policy. So there is definitely, like I said, a, a sword being you know, wielded in, in, uh, Capitol, on Capitol Hill and making sure that these policies continue to support these large multinational organizations.
3: It's bipartisan too. To give you an example,
1: the Obama administration campaign in 2008 adopted most all the policies we were advocating for and that we had developed wanted an inclusive economy, an economy that regardless of, of uh, you know, th- this country has, has uh, systemic uh, racial discrimination that goes deep within agriculture. And uh, the commitments were made to have an inclusive economy where everyone within that food chain, that supply chain, whether you was the a farm worker, the immigrant farm worker, or, or, or the worker on the line, or the family farmer, you you to get your fair share of that and to bust the backs of these monopolies that, that 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 control this whole system. And yet within about two years we saw all the policy change and an abandonment of those commitments.
3: What about President Trump? Surely he's fighting for rural America.
1: In terms of, you know, our
0: current administration, I mean there's there's things going on and things being rolled back and protections and safeguards to our environment that are being rolled back daily that would make your
3: head spin. The United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, is not only responsible for ag policy, but also nutrition. Things like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, which you probably think of as food stamps. And guess who has a seat at the table? Big meat. You know, we help
1: coin the phrase and others that, you know, it's really USDA Inc. Uh, the United States Department of Agriculture controls all food policy. It it controls uh, SNAP, nutritional programs, not just farmer programs, but our nutritional programs are housed at the United States Department of Agriculture. And if the listeners don't understand that, they really need to Google real quick and, and take a strong look because USDA,
3: whoever the secretary is, has the power. I personally think of a satisfying meal as one that includes meat. I know that's like a pretty Western-centric understanding, but that's what I know. It's also not entirely my fault. I've been brainwashed. Every five years, the USDA puts out a document called the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, basically a committee-written definition of what it means to eat healthy. The committee is built of scientists and nutrition and public health researchers. Obviously, no individual American has to follow the guidelines. Yet. But it guides stuff like nutritional labeling and what food stamps can be used for. Lawmakers reference it for how school and prison cafeterias are supplied, and of course, it affects the American psyche. Americans are taught from a young age that they need meat. And USDA recommendations are a big part of it, because that's what the scientists say.
1: And it's not that a piece of meat with dinner is a bad thing, but having a 16-ounce steak in the center of your plate... Even the American Meat Institute says it's kind of crazy. That's just on your birthday. That's it, right? Yeah, yeah, it's supposed to be just on your birthday.
3: Even the classic food pyramid, which has since gone out of use, was influenced by big meat. The first draft was just the image of the pyramid with no serving sizes, making it look like you should eat less meat. Big meat complained about it, and subsequent drafts added numbers of servings with ranges, suggesting way more meat consumption. Here's Leah Douglas so
4: much of what we learn about nutrition um, has to do with dietary recommendations that are heavily influenced by the food industry and by industry i mean the companies that really make the product so you know every lobby every food sector wants to really make sure that their products are recommended by the government for a healthy diet so there is an intertwined uh, relationship there and it can create some mixed messages for consumers because we're not always necessarily seeing um, a healthy diet reflected in the dietary guidelines because of how it's warped by industry influence.
3: The most recent guidelines were heavily lobbied by beef to avoid anti-red meat language. The term red meat literally doesn't appear in the entire thing. They instead just recommend lean meats. An early draft did include language about red meat, but scientists from literally the North American Meat Institute successfully lobbied against public health officials to kill the red meat warning. So like lobbyists that good are expensive, right? So who's paying for all of that? Here's Joe Maxwell.
1: The first thing uh, we need to understand, some of it is subsidized by the very farmers that are being driven out of business through what's called checkoff programs, commodity checkoff programs. Farmers have an assessment every time they sell something, an assessment's taken out of that sale, out of their check, and goes into this government fund. That government fund, the majority of that money winds up in the hands of trade lobbying and trade organizations that represent big meat.
3: Farmers are paying for big meat to lobby against their interests. Here's Sherry Duggar.
0: Checkoff programs are actually mandated tax programs on family farmers on independent family farmers That so every so if i was raising cows and taking them into a processor to have them processed to be sold you know to sell the meat and get it into the market i would have to pay like a dollar on every cow that goes into that processor and so every one of those dollars on that cow that i have to pay i'm forced to pay uh, that goes into a marketing campaign or a checkoff program is what they called and and actually those The recipients of that money is uh, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, some of these big industry organizations, these big trade organizations that support the industry. So what they're supposed to do by law is to promote and market all types of the product. Uh, You know, the hogs, uh, pork industry has one, the beef has one, all of these different checkoff programs, you know, like the um, beef, it's what's for dinner. That was a checkoff program marketing scheme.
3: Like this classic,
1: You know, I'm not easily annoyed, but I never liked
2: the way the vegetables always fell off between the sirloin on my beef kebabs. I fixed that. I don't put vegetables on my beef kebabs. In fact, I believe that's why someone
1: invented salad. Beef, real food for real people.
0: So those programs, those marketing programs are to <laughs> socialize us, to, to understand that we need these products all the time and to get them, get us to buy these products all the time. But what they're actually doing is in a lot of ways, they're, they're supporting the commodity, the industrial agriculture system. They're programs that are built in, you know, that, that these farmers are forced to pay into that essentially in, in a lot of ways work against
3: them. What really pisses me off about that is how much lawmakers lean on the image of the American farm in their political messaging, while advocating for policy that makes it more and more difficult for family farms to survive. Farm bills, agricultural legislation, all that stuff, for the most part, doesn't help actual farmers. And it's the small farmers who are literally paying for it. So, what have these decades of big meat-owned legislation and supply chain control done to the American farmer?
0: Farmer suicide is a huge issue. It's been really bad lately. These farmers, you have to try to understand, this is probably likely a farmer who has, you know, um, inherited, so to speak, an, an op- a tradition in their family. They're, these are sixth, seventh, eighth generation farmers. And who wants to be that farmer who loses the family business, who who isn't able to sustain what has been going on for generations?
1: Uh, most of us in agriculture, over the time period of the 1980 uh, to now they've uh, either had a close friend neighbor or a family member myself a family member that has committed suicide uh, because they wanted to do it uh, with the values I described and, and by and they were put in a box um, of conflict um, you know uh, they were unwilling God love them to move into that extractive, profit-based model and it was costing them their farm and they, but they wouldn't change because that they were not going to farm that way. And instead they chose to take their life. Um, It has been a hard, uh, hard uh, story out there uh, for us to share oftentimes because it is very personal
3: to us. The health of rural America is important for all of us.
1: What is going on in rural America um, will, is dictating all of our future, either from a health point of view or a climate point of view. This is where the rubber uh, hits the road, is in rural America. If we're going to have solutions to some of the biggest problems we're facing, it will be because we reformed uh, these policies and stimulated rural America. Uh, So, uh, and I hope everybody can grasp uh, the dire need that America's family farmers need and how bad it is on the farm from this conversation. But I think the other thing I hope the, the, the takeaway would be is that we're all responsible. We're all responsible because we make our choice at that retail grocery store.
3: It's not just American farmers that our choices as consumers impact. Just because beef is marked American doesn't mean it was raised in America. So it's pretty likely you're eating Amazon deforestation beef.
4: There are some loopholes in terms of our, our labeling for meat that allow products that, um, that allow for the labeling of Made in America for um, animal products where the animal was actually born and raised part of its life in another country and imported to the U.S. for maybe, you know, a final, the final few months of its life and then being slaughtered or some amount of time. Um, and that can still receive a Made in America or Raised in America label. A live cow can be brought over from Brazil, which
0: happens every day, shipped over from Brazil, it comes over live on a ship, it comes to our border, goes through a USDA processing center, gets killed, gets processed, gets packaged, and then is labeled product of the USA and goes onto a grocery store shelf where 40% of our population at least really cares about buying American. And so they're buying products that they think were born and raised in, in the United States, when in fact, they're not.
3: And that's not all. Remember, extractive industry. Big meat is a major contributor to climate change because of its emissions. Here's Shafali Sharma.
2: The five big companies, meat and dairy companies, produce more greenhouse gas emissions than uh, Exxon or BP or Shell. I should, uh, you know, put a word of caution out there and say, by far, fossil fuel companies are the largest emitters. And so the focus should definitely continue to be on the fossil fuel companies. But that doesn't mean we let meat and dairy companies off the hook. You know, agriculture is still, you know, the food system is up to 37 percent of total global greenhouse gas emissions. And the meat industry is a big part of that.
3: Big meat is literally destroying the world. More after this. We're all living through the coronavirus pandemic, and you probably experienced meat shortages or price hikes earlier this year. That's an entirely predictable consequence of consolidation, the big meat situation I've been talking about. And coronavirus has actually made some of these major issues with big meat really visible.
4: There is a serious crisis facing uh, food processing and meat packing facilities right now in the COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen uh, just widespread outbreaks of the virus at facilities all over the country and also increasingly on farms uh, and and production facilities.
3: The way CAFOs are built, the concentrated animal feeding operations we talked about earlier, the way workers are situated is not at all an ideal situation for social distancing.
0: What we've seen with COVID-19 is that there's an absolute lack of humanity in our food system right now. I think we're seeing it every day in terms of what's happening at the meatpacking plants
4: almost all of the meat packing facilities are open and all of those workers are required to report for work or risk losing their jobs so the outcome of this has been hugely dangerous for workers many plants are still seeing very high rates of absenteeism either workers are sick they're caring for a sick family member or they're just too afraid to go into work and rolling the dice to say i don't want to contract this potentially deadly disease There are definitely advocates, worker advocates, who would say that over the course of the pandemic, these workers have been treated as disposable. Again, they tend to be low income, they might not be native English speakers, might be disproportionately people of color, again, might be disproportionately living in households with multiple families, all these factors which, you know, are are all sort of linked together.
3: And then of course it spreads to the local communities even more bad news for the people who've already been dealing with the local CAFOs for years coronavirus has made it clear how fucked up our carno agriculture system really is
0: so right now if you look at the media you know mainstream america is seeing our industrial agriculture system crumble underneath COVID-19 and these, these, you know, meat packing plants and these workers who have low wages already and poor working conditions already and who are literally dying because they're being forced to go back into work into an environment that's not protecting them and not keeping them safe. And so, you know, the mainstream average eater can see these stories now and they can begin to understand the harm of this system but at the very same time Srap or my the organization that I lead who works to help communities fight or oppose these uh, concentrated animal feeding operations, either expand or be constructed in the first place, we're getting calls almost every day with new permits that are coming in for across the United States where people are very worried about these operations opening up. So we have millions of animals being killed during this COVID crisis and actually literally just buried into the ground, turned into compost, whatever they need to do just to get rid of them because we have a bottleneck and. the processing system. And at the same time, people are still getting permitted and they're still you know, opening up and going through the motions of opening up new operations. So there's obviously a huge, very real, very apparent problem in our system. And yet people are still just moving through the, the essentially <laughs> through the line, getting new operations set up.
3: That's right. More KFOs are getting permitted. And big meat is growing because Americans like things cheap.
2: When we say cheap meat, it's artificially priced. And it's artificially priced because we don't internalize. These companies don't internalize any of the environmental or the public health costs. Whether it's um, you know nitrate pollution, whether it's uh, antibiotics and antibiotic resistance, or any of these other things that are generated from the system.
3: Have you guys ever read or seen the play Waiting for Godot? There's this one repeated line, nothing to be done. Fixing our food system is one of these big problems it seems like we can't do anything about. Because we can't get the world to quit meat and people like things cheap. Solving this problem will mean sacrifice. Sacrifice of convenience, of the cheapest meat, of our usual diets.
2: There is another way of doing this. There's another way of raising chickens. There's another way of raising pigs. There's another way of treating uh, farmers and workers in the food system. And we've just gotten so used to just having all of this at the cheapest way possible and not really uh, understanding uh, that all of what goes on behind the scenes in this. And are we willing to take a look and say, actually, I want decentralized food system. I want to have local, local food. I want local slaughterhouses.
3: Supporting family farms and rural communities is a big part of this. Here's Joe Maxwell. You know, our farmers are struggling.
1: Uh, it's, it's rough on the family farm. I walk my farm uh, almost daily. And I want to be a good steward. I want there to be another generation that cares. I want to know that when the person eats what I raise, that they don't have to worry about what it just did to them. I want them to be happy that they know that it provided them the nutrition they needed and it tasted good the price for not selecting that family farmers product is my way of life second think about your own health just research uh, the health consequences of the industrialized food and meat system think about your own health personal health and your community's health think about Uh, those uh, communities of color smelling the stench and how you're purchasing that industrial meat are really contributing to the demise of their health and of their community and of their prosperity. Uh, Think about uh, the environmental cost. Um, we, we, We have to change the way in which we're going about. We need a a reformation in our culture system. We only have, the clock is ticking on whether we'll even be able to raise food. Uh, And that's real. Uh, Climate change is real. And we need to have good stewards. We need to have those farmers that are regenerative type agriculture, pasture based. Uh, We need those kind of farmers that care
3: So you just listen to all this and maybe feel guilty and want to do your part to support small farms. What do you do?
0: So I think it's a matter of making a choice. If people can do one thing, which is to buy their dairy, their eggs and their meat products, their protein products from local farms, that right there is huge.
1: I would also suggest one of the things uh, to do is locate uh, your farmer's market and look at their vendor list, something that simple. Many of those farms uh, off season or otherwise sell direct. The more we can grow these markets, the more efficient they become and the more the price will come down. Uh, So the more the consumer pulls through on these available markets that are there, uh, the, the more efficient those business models become and the more that consumer can
3: see price savings. But like, don't forget, it really isn't your fault. These people, from big meat to big oil to big plastic, try to put the onus of responsibility on the consumer. But come on, compare your effect to that of a multinational conglomerate.
4: There's been a lot of discussion over the years around the power of consumers to affect how our food is grown. There's been, um, you know, the the emergence of the farmers market movement. Where now there's farmers markets, you know, in every major city and many rural places all over the country um, whether it's pushing for organic and the the huge rise of the organic industry at the same time exactly what you've described we've seen a limit for how much consumer action alone can do to really have major impact on how our food is is grown is shipped how the animals are treated how the farmers are treated how the workers are treated Um, there's just only so much that can be done from the consumer perspective so in my work i really especially try to explore what can be done at the regulatory level, at policy, at the federal or state or local county level um, from sort of the top down, as opposed to waiting and relying on consumers to give feedback about, you know, this is what I want to see. So there's a big shift um, and question there around whether it's possible to to move some of that momentum from consumers into really um, individuals seeing themselves as voters who can have regulatory and policy impact as well in the food system.
3: Ultimately, it's a question of getting the government to do what it's supposed to do. What we would advocate for is uh,
1: enforcement of our antitrust laws. You can be too big. It's not healthy for rural communities or consumers or farmers to have only four big companies controlling our food system. It's not healthy financially, it's not healthy to our own personal health, to our community health, and it's not healthy to our environment or to our drinking water, to our land. And so we need, we, we, we are getting action now. We believe um, there's been legislation introduced, there's investigations going on to help control that power through our antitrust laws. Second. We see an opportunity to really build out a local and regional food system that is sustainable uh, for, for us and our environment, for the farmers and for the consumers. Here's Leah Douglas.
4: There's been the emergence of a really strong alliance uh, between farmers and environmentalists um, in the last few years, and some farmers that I know would really resist those two categories because they would say I'm a farmer and an environmentalist. Um, you know, I think there's a stereotype that that farmers are. Um, are all conservative, for instance, are all regressive in their thoughts on climate change or the environment, um, and are all uh, you know interested in the status quo and not interested in changing things? In my reporting, I work with dozens and dozens of farmers who uh, challenge those stereotypes in all ways, um, and who are very invested in seeing this model become more sustainable. So, the Green New Deal uh, was one is one leverage point that many farmers are rallying around to say, you know, there's work to be done in this policy. There's improvements that need to be made for how it talks about farming and agriculture, but it's the best shot we've got and we should support it. So that's been a great example of just how in some ways, this conventional status quo system has, has made sort of new odd bedfellows out of everyone who wants to see it change, including in this case, you know, young progressive environmentalists, urban city dwellers um, who support the Green New Deal with farmers who might be taking action on an environmental issue for the first time.
3: And you're probably sick of me saying this, but if you care about this, get involved with your local politicians. One of the things I would let your listeners
1: know is uh, amazingly enough, I just kind of left the farm and walked into a member of Congress's office and said, I, I want to help this because this person was fighting hard for us. I said, I want to help this person get reelected. We've got to have more of these folks. And uh, and they put me to stuffing envelopes. And before I knew it, I was doing other things for him, And I realized how easy it was uh, to take action, to be an individual and be able to stand up for what you know is right and do something about it.
4: People, again, I think often see farm and agriculture issues as mainly rural, as not really um, being affected by what people who don't live in farming communities think. But there is an opportunity to engage. Um, you know, there are some legislators who are very interested in this issue outside of those communities so there's probably an opportunity to get involved uh, at that level and at the local level wherever you are
0: one of my previous positions as an executive director for another organization we did this plate to politics program where we encouraged we did workshops and we encouraged people to run for office who might not have considered running for office i think we needed not only do we need diversity in our food and agriculture system desperately but we need diversity in our our legislative system and so I, you know, that's another thing consumers can start thinking about, or eaters can start thinking about, is how can they play a part? Whether that's on a school board, and and you can make decisions about what how the school sources their food, or whether that's in you know city councils, town councils, state houses, all the way up to Capitol Hill. People don't understand how important it is to engage and to be active, and to you know they're standing on their own truths. They are experts in on the issues that they know and that they live every day. So people oftentimes don't believe they're ready to run for office or that they're capable of running for office, but once you start talking to them and and getting them to understand all the different ways that they can participate in their communities and all the change that they can in fact, you know, affect, they start to understand that it's really worth it to to go out there and to take a risk and to essentially put themselves you know, <laughs> um, at ill-ease for a little bit just to see if they can do it. And a lot of people do it and they, they change their minds and they go out there and run for office and they create huge change within their communities. So I would say people are standing on their truth and, and they need to speak it and live it and they can change the world with it.
3: I still love meat. I'm going to keep eating beef, pork, chicken, even other poultries, whatever those are. Today we talked about how big meat is destroying rural America and the world. But there's another way. A decentralized local food system that supports small farmers and independent ranchers. A food system that isn't inhumane and doesn't treat workers as disposable or destroy the environment. Being aware of where your meat is coming from as a consumer and a voter is something you can do today. You have the power to dismantle big meat and still get to have a steak once in a while. On the next episode of Who Is, we're looking at another company that extracts wealth from everywhere and which has made the man who founded it the wealthiest human being on the planet. It's Jeff Bezos. Next week, a sincere thank you to our guests. Leah Douglas, an associate editor and staff writer at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, where she covers the business and politics of food, Agriculture and the Environment. Sherry Duggar, Executive Director of the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. Joe Maxwell, former Lieutenant Governor of Missouri and co-founder and president of Family Farm Action Alliance. And Shafali Sharma, the Director of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy's European Office. Who is is a podcast. From now this, I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Kinsey Clark is our associate producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And Now This, Tina Izaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to PJ Evans, Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Whois, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. Special thanks to Chloe Waterman. Whois, the podcast, season two, new episodes out every Tuesday. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe and tell all your friends.